Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. This week, our lead pastor, Mike Yearly, continues his series entitled The Message and the Movement, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And today's message is the 10th in the series, and it's entitled Impact and Influence. How you doing? Good to be here, isn't it? Good to be together. It's a great family weekend with uh, kids singing and the the baby dedications, the chance to worship, do some time in the Word. And uh, my name is Pastor Mike. If this is your very first time here at Rocky Peak, I want to welcome you. I'm the lead pastor here. And we're just excited about what God's doing in our church, and I'm excited that you're here. And so if this is your very first time, a, w- a special welcome. Inside the bulletin is a, a white message note sheet. We use that every week as we go through our time of teaching in the Word. And and, uh, and so if you've got that, uh, you know, pull that out to help you follow along. Everyone got their Bibles tonight? Got them? Word. Amen. That's right. We want to be a church built on the Word, right? Amen. So let's, uh, let's pray together and then uh, jump in. We're in this series on the Sermon on the Mount. For those of you who are new, and uh, you'll, we'll, I'll give you a little bit more on that later, later to get you up to speed. Let's, uh, let's jump in. Father, thank you for what you're doing at our church. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the way you come into our lives and you change us from the inside out. Lord, you shape our character. You shape who we are. And then you say to let our light shine. But once you've done your work, you say, be who you are. Be who you've made me to be. And so, Lord, we pray today as we, we come to your word and as we, we talk about being salt, being light, what that means, we pray, Lord, that you just give us great freedom just to be who we are and to shine. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, the year was 1759, and he was born in, in the town of Hull, England. And he was born into a, a, a family that had kind of an upper middle class family, so he had it really good growing up, but his parents died when he was young. And so he had to then move to, from uh, kind of relative to relative, but he inherited his family's wealth. So he was able to stay in school. That was the good news. He went through schools. He graduated from Cambridge University when he was only 20 years old. And when he was 21, he became a member of parliament. Only four days. He had to be at least 21. He became it right away. At that point in his life, if you were to ask him kind of the purpose of your life, he'd be the first to tell you, looking back, that, hey, the purpose of my life was all about me. I wanted to make a name for myself, and I didn't want to do the family business. And so I, I just kind of went into Parliament because I wanted to make a name for myself. But that all changed four years later when he was 25 years old, and he became a Christ follower. Someone came alongside of him, a friend, and explained Christianity to him in a way that finally made sense. And he gave his life to Christ, and Jesus came in his life and began to change him from the inside out. He knew from the beginning his life would never be the same. And he knew from the beginning that God had called him to make a difference. He just didn't know how. And so he began to consult with family and friends and relatives and, and people he'd respect. One of the people he went to was a famous man named John Newton. John Newton had been a slave trader, ran a slave ship for years. He'd come to Christ, given that all up. He wrote the, the famous hymn we still sing today, Amazing Grace. They all told him the same thing. He said, well, we know you've got a great voice. We know you're a great speaker, but we don't think you should go in the ministry. That's what he was thinking of doing. You know, a lot of times people come to Christ and they're on fire. Well, I need to go in the ministry. He says, no, that's not what you need to do. He said, well, everyone said the same thing. You need to go back to parliament, but you need to ask God, what are you, what are you there for? What does he want you to accomplish? So he went back to the House of Commons. And in 1787, just a couple years after he'd given his life to Christ, the cause came before him for which he would give his life. It was the cause of slavery. You see, at that time, England was a superpower, and they ruled the seas, their ships, they'd send hundreds of ships every year from their coast down to the coast of Africa where they pick up slaves. These slaves would be put into like cargo hulls 
If you've ever seen these slips, it's hard, hard to believe. The, the people were stacked like, like some kind of cargo. They, could, they didn't have enough room to stand up in their, their berths. They'd have to lay down. Often it would be they'd lay down and their head would be between someone else's legs. They'd be chained there for weeks at a time. Many people would die. They wouldn't allow them to get up to go to the bathroom or eat or whatever. And so they would lay there in their own urine. They would lay there in their own filth. They would lay there in their own blood. When someone would die next to them, they wouldn't take them out. They wouldn't undo them unless they thought they had something that was a a disease that would would spread. And so they would lay there in the blood and they would lay there. And many times, half of the the slaves would actually die before they would actually get to port over that three-week journey to the new world. And so some abolitionists came to, Wilbur, or to William Wilberforce when he was this young man, just 27, 28 years old, and they said, will you take up this cause of slavery? And the DNA in Jesus had come into him, and he was no longer just a normal guy. He could no longer just be about partying and being about a fun time. You see, when Jesus comes into a life, he begins to change. He begins to put his DNA in. He begins to change us from the inside out. And he couldn't live with this any longer, and so he decided to pick up this cause. He was fighting against huge odds. The slave trade was huge business in England. It carried as much of the national economy in England at the time as the defense industry does in our country today. Of the members of parliament, the 300 members of the House of Commons, almost everyone was on the take from the slave traders. There was no way, it was impossible that you could ever pass a law to outlaw slave trading. But he began to take within two years after he made this decision to give his life to this, he gave his first speech on the floor of parliament. It was a three and a half hour speech. He detailed this, the, the, the whole, all the details of the slave trade. People couldn't believe it. A lot of them had never even known. The next day, the newspaper said it was one of the most powerful speeches in the history of parliament. Some were so over the top that they, 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 they predicted that the slave trade would soon be banned in England altogether. But it was not to be. There was too much money. Popular opinion was against him. And so year after year, he'd, bring, he'd go to Parliament. Year after year, he'd bring the issue. They'd, they'd pick up steam. When Parliament wouldn't listen, they'd go to the public. They'd write books. They'd make tours. They'd do speeches. They'd go to the nation. When the nation wouldn't listen, they'd come up with new strategies. And for 20 years, they fought that fight. Until in 1807, 20 years after he took up the fight, At four o'clock in the morning, the House of Commons, having arguing all night long, finally voted to end the slave trade in in England. The vote was 283 to 16. And when that vote was taken at four o'clock in the morning, the House of Commons, in an unprecedented way, stood as one man and and just applauded for minutes as, as William Wilberforce sat there with tears coming down his cheeks. They had won the first leg of the battle. But that wasn't the end of the battle. You see, all that did is that outlawed slave trading. It wouldn't even stop slave trading because illegal slave trading would go on for years. No, it would be 26 more years until July 26, 1833. William Wilberforce was now an old man. He was now 73 years old. He'd been sick his whole life, and he's on his deathbed. He was no longer able to serve in Parliament, though he'd served this cause his whole life. And when the vote was taken on July 26th, they sent a message to this great man that the slaves throughout the British Empire had been set free, that slavery was no more. It was one of the turning points of world history. And three days later, William Wilberforce went to be with the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Today we move into a whole new section in the Sermon on the Mount. If you've been here the last few weeks, 
you kind of know what it's about. Jesus gets his people together. He gets his disciples. The crowds are there. They go up to the hillside above the Sea of Galilee. He begins to share the message of his movement. This is what we notice as Sermon on the Mount. He starts off that sermon with a section called the Beatitudes where he spells out the character of the kingdom. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What kind of person is he looking for? What kind of person will he turn us into if we follow? It's the character of the kingdom. And so we've gone through that section. Now we're moving into a different section. So far he's talked to us about the character of the kingdom. Now he wants to talk to us about our impact on our culture. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What's our relationship with our culture? What impact are we to have in our culture? And he's going to use a couple like, common metaphors. If you've been a Christian for a while, you kind of, you've heard of these. He's going to, say, he's going to pick up a couple kind of common household items. And here's what he's going to say. He's going to say that you and I are destined, we are designed to make a difference. We're here on purpose. We're, he's designed us to make a difference. And to help kind of illustrate this, he uses two common household items. The first, he says, we are to be like salt. That, uh, you, know, now, you know, I'm sure you have salt in your life. I've got salt in my life. It's common, right? It's common now. It's common then. You flavor food with it. Back then, that was even more important because they not only used it to, to flavor their food, but they would use it to... Um, to kind of keep things from going rotten. They would, they would salt their meat. They'd salt their fish. They didn't have refrigeration. And so salt was not only about flavor. Salt was about preserving something from going bad. And so Jesus says that we're to be the salt. We're to add flavor to life. We're to present the, prevent the culture from going bad. We're to have a preservative effect. He's going to go on and say you're also like the light of the world. In that day and age, of course, they had no electricity. And so when you went into a building or when the, when the sun went down, you had to have lights a, kind of a standard lamp in those days where they would have a clay, kind of a clay pot or saucer. It would be pinched at one end like a pitcher would be. They would take a wick and put it right in that, that uh, kind of notch that the, in that, uh, that, that uh, groove. And then they'd fill it with olive oil and they'd light it. Once you light it, you'd put it on a stand or you'd put it on, on this, uh, kind of a, on, on a hanger at the side, of the, build, uh, the side of the wall. The idea was to get it high so it could give light to the whole room. And so Jesus says, you're the salt, you're the light. You're the light. You're the people who know what life's about. You're the people who know the truth about life. You know, you know who I am. You know how life is supposed to be lived. You're the one who's supposed to light the way. So you are, are like the light of the world. Now, of course, the, the danger that Jesus warns us about, he says, hey, but what happens if the salt loses its saltiness? What happens if the light is, is hid under a, um, like a bowl? He says, what happens then? Well, then the world's dark. The world doesn't have salt. He says, so the big danger is that we would lose our saltiness or we would hide our light. And so he goes on to challenge us and says, so you need to be who you are. You're light. You're salt. Be it. Be yourselves. Do, do your thing. Be who you are because the world desperately needs it, okay? So that's kind of overview. Now let's take our Bibles. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5 and let's follow along. Matthew chapter 5, and we'll start at verse 13. We'll be going through verse 16. What we're going to do is going to walk through it and just kind of, kind of follow what Jesus says, make a couple of comments, and then we're going to talk about three principles for our lives about uh, impact and influence. So here we go, verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Now catch this. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, you always have to remember this, there's two kinds of people there, Right? They're the crowd, and there's the followers, the crowd and the kingdom, right? 
And so what he's saying is he's pointing to his followers. He says, you, as my followers, you are the light of the world. You see? You, you're my followers. So he says, you are the salt of the earth. Uh, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? So, so picture this. You're sitting at the dinner table. You get the steak. You say, did you salt this when you barbecued this? No, I didn't. Oh, great. Could I have some salt? And so you put some salt on it. You take another bite. It tastes exactly the same. Like, what's up with that? I thought I put some salt on it. You put some more salt on it. Take another bite. It tastes exactly the same. What's up with that? Finally, it's the salt. The salt isn't salty. What are you going to do? Well, pass me some more salt to put on the salt. You see? If the salt has lost its, its, its saltiness, it's really, its value is worthless, right? And he says, what, what are you going to do? He says, well, all you can do, he says, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except be thrown out and trampled by men. He says, in our lives, if we lose our saltiness, we lose our impact, we lose our influence, he says, hey, we're really, we're, we're kind of missing the whole point of why we're here on planet Earth, right? We might as well be thrown out. Now, in verse 14, he goes to a new analogy. He says, you are the light of the world. Now, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. I think it was New Year's Eve, I believe it was. We were coming back from some friend's house down in the valley, and, uh, and we were coming down Topanga Canyon uh, Road, and, um, and you saw the cross up here on the hill. And it always surprises me. I don't know if you've ever done that, kind of the, the orientation of things. I always think Topanga Canyon should be going down this way, and it's like, no, it's more an angle. And it's amazing to me, because I'm not used to coming that way that late at night. You can see the cross from way down there, can't you? And he says, hey, this is the way light works. I mean, the whole earth is dark tonight, but you put this light on a hill, and it overcomes the darkness. That's just the way it works. He says, um, so you're the light of the world. The city on a hill cannot be hidden. Um, He said, neither do men light a lamp and put it in a bowl. How ridiculous. Now, you know, we don't see the humor in this. It's how stupid. They use lamps all the time. You light the lamp. Hey, it's getting dark. You don't light the lamp? Yes, put it in a bowl. It's like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? He says, no one would do that. He says, instead, you put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. So in the same way, he says, you need to let your light shine before men so they can see your good. Now, notice this next word. This is important for later on. It says, they can see your good what? Your good deeds. Now, in the original, in the, in the Greek, the word is works there, okay? You'll see your good works. This is very important because if you've been a Christian a long time, and we'll come back to this later, but I just want to give you a heads up now. If you've been a Christian a long time, often when this passage is taught, the application is we need to be willing, ready and willing to share Christ at a moment's notice, right? You're at a bus stop, and the pole moves, share Jesus. You know, it's like, that. get them saved. You see what I'm saying? That this verse is often taught that, hey, to let your light shine is about our words. I just want to point it out early, because otherwise I'm going to lose some of you for the whole service. You're going, oh, no, here we go again, all right? So you just let your, your uh, good works, and then the result is they'll praise your Father in heaven. They'll look and say, wow, that's so cool. Did you see what that person's doing? That's awesome what God's doing in their life. So it's going to bring praise to God. Okay, so that's the passage. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about this whole salt and light thing. And, and we're going to talk about impact and influence, finding our place in the world. And you see there in your note sheet, there's three principles, all right? And we're going to jump in. Here we go. The first one um, is that you and I, we are designed to make a difference, Right? If you're a follower of Jesus, now if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, then this is not yet true of you. But when you come to Christ, then this will be true, that you are designed as a follower of Jesus to make a difference. 
In other words, we are here on planet Earth to have an impact. Jesus has designed us to be dangerous. Okay? We are to be influencers. Now, now stop and think with me on this. This is very interesting to me because this is opposite, often in the Christian church exactly the opposite way we come out this. Often we live as if the world is out there, the world is evil, the world is big, the world is bad, and oh, we got to stay away from the world, we're going to be influenced, right? And we spend a lot of time saying, oh, make sure we're not influenced from the world. And of course, that's a good thing because it shouldn't be going that way, but Jesus says, not only should it not be going that way, it should be going the other way. He says, you are here for influence. I've designed you for impact. And he uses a couple analogies that sometimes in Christian circles we've gotten so used to that we miss the point. Jesus chooses two common household items. It's almost like a kindergarten class, a show and tell, object lesson thing here. And he says, let me explain the impact that you're to have. And he says, um, let me explain. I'm going to pick two things. I'm going to pick salt and light. Now, so I want us to think about this, okay? So I brought some salt and light. Come here. All right. So we got our salt here. You all recognize this, right? Now, let's say that you have a five-year-old, Okay. You're sitting at the dinner table. He says, Mommy, I want salt. And you say, oh, it's in the kitchen. He misunderstands. He goes and goes to the cupboard, not where the salt shaker is. He comes back with one of these, right? And he's there, and he's at the table. And you look over, and you're looking over just as he's pulling up his top like this and going like this. Now, what are you going to say to your five-year-old? Whoa. Slow down, right? Be, be careful, right? Hey, be careful. Why? Because salt is powerful stuff. It only takes a little bit of salt to flavor a lot of food. And if you pour a little bit too much, man, you're going to overwhelm the, all the rest of the flavors, right? Salt is, you don't mess with salt. See, see salt, you don't like, you don't pour this whole bunch of salt on and go, oh, wow, that steak, I can't even taste the salt. The steak's, the flavor is so strong. You don't say that, right? You're careful when you pour the salt because it's the salt that overwhelms things. Right? Salt can be overwhelming. And we've all had that experience, right? You're, you're at a restaurant, or what's dark, they have a salt, salt shake with big holes in it. And you don't know it. And you're like, and you're like, ah, you know, it's like, now you're stuck. You paid 20 bucks for the meal. You're going to eat it whether it kills you, you know? Right? See, salt is powerful stuff. Jesus didn't say you're the sugar of the world. He said you're the salt of the world. He said, you are designed for impact. You are designed for influence. You get a few Christians around, they should change the flavor of everything. Doesn't take many Christ followers to change the flavor of a culture. You see? If they're truly following, if they haven't lost their saltiness. Okay, let's do another one. All right, I got a light here. Now, I told you about the lamps, right? And how they do their lamps. Well, I I used to have a lamp kind of like that, but I gave it away last year because I thought I'd never use it. Great, so here I am. So this is my lamp, all right? So it's kind of, you get the idea. Okay, now we're going we're gonna to do something here. We're going to turn the lights out. There they go. They shut it all down. Okay, now, now it's not totally dark in here, right? And our eyes are going to adjust in a minute, but it's, it's fairly dark. Like if you were to get up right now and try to run out, it'd be a little scary, right? We probably, you'd likely run into somebody, get hurt. It's, 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 so just imagine the place was totally dark, all right? And I wish it were because it would make a, bigger, a better impression. Better story. Okay. Okay, now can, can you all see that? Everyone in the room can see that, right? This is one little candle, one little wick. 
it's no more than maybe a quarter inch. That wick's about a quarter inch by maybe a sixteenth of an inch. But everyone can see it, right? You can all see it. You see, the darkness here is huge in this room. The darkness is huge, but one light can change everything. In fact, in fact, this is not a lot of light, but since I'm so close to it, if I'm careful, I could probably read by it. I could walk down the stairs by it. One little light can change a whole dark room. Okay, let's go back. Let's, let's turn the lights back on. Okay, so Jesus comes along. He says, I want you to get this. He picked these analogies carefully. You are the salt. He says, hey, you're in a dark world. It doesn't take many candles to change the whole feeling of a dark world. You and I are designed for influence. We are designed for impact. Now, here's what he wants us to understand. That our job as Christ followers is not to run and hide from this wicked world. Our job is to infiltrate and to change this wicked world. See, we are the light and we are the salt. Uh, let me give you just one more analogy that I think would be helpful. Uh, and this doesn't work totally, but I think you'll, you'll catch the idea. Uh, I love football. Anyone love football here? You have football fans? Okay, great. Got a few football. I love football. I grew up playing football, watching football. Uh, just just love, love football. It's my favorite sport. Um, but there's one part about a football game that I don't like other than halftime. But you want to guess what it is? What's one of my, the part of football that I, I don't like? The huddle, exactly, because nothing's happening during a huddle, right? Now, if you're playing football, um, the huddle is an important part of the game because in the huddle, you go, you nurse your wounds, you catch your breath, you figure out what do we need to do next. You remind each other, hey, did you block him? You missed that block. We got to do that. You know, we, we remember the game plan. Hey, guys, come remember what we said. And so it's, the huddle's extremely important to the game, but no one goes to a game to watch the huddle. Like, hey, man, did you see that huddle? Look at that. Whoa. See, they're doing a little different. Wow, look how they're standing. It's like, no, no, no. It's not about the huddle. Now, here's the thing. As followers of Jesus, what we we do here on the weekend services, what we do in our life groups, we are huddling. We are huddling. We are coming together as Christ followers to encourage one another, to remind each other of the game plan, to get clear where we're going, remind what's this game all about. Hey, remember what your assignment is? How are you doing, right? We're in the huddle. But then we break and we go back out. We go into our worlds. We go into our jobs. We go into our little league coaching situations. We go into our communities. That's where the game is, you see? And that's what Jesus is saying, is that you're, you're not, it's not about the huddle. It's about the impact, you see? So he wants, he wants us to catch. Now, here's the good news about this. The good news about this is you and I, we are primed for influence. I mean, we're, we're placed. I mean, most of you here, you work with non-believers, right? Most of you here, you get to work with, with non-Christians. I, I don't have that privilege, but most of you have that privilege. I just have to work with Christians. <laughs> yeah, but then they can hold me accountable, so it's kind of a double-edged sword. Anyway, um, yeah, and so... Uh, we, most of us here, we work with, with, uh, with non-believers. Uh, we live in communities and neighborhoods and streets with people who don't know Jesus, right? You're in PTAs. You're, you're uh, at Starbucks. You're, you go to the gym. We're, we have believe, non-believers, right? And so we are positioned for influence, okay? But now we've got to take advantage of it, okay? So that leads to number two. 
Now, the second principle, I gotta warn you, we're gonna be here for a while. This is sort of like, you know, number one, fairly fast point, number two, long point, number three, fairly fast point. So we're gonna be here a while. So uh, you might wanna kick back. Um, but here's how it goes. The secret of influence, and this is, now I want you to think about it. If you, let's say Jesus were here, and we say, okay, so, okay, Jesus, so we're supposed to have impact, right? We're supposed to have influence. So could you tell us how to do that, right? What does it mean to be salt? What does it mean to light? How do we do that? And here's the thing that just blows me away. I, I think he, he would love this point, okay? Here we go. The secret of influence is to be yourself. There's some of you going, well, you obviously don't know me. <laughs> uh, the secret is be yourself. Let's talk about that. Now, here's what we're going to do. For this, to understand this point, we're going to have to do a little sidebar, like in a magazine here. We're going to leave Matthew 5 for a second. We're going to do a little sidebar here. We're going to talk about what happens when a person becomes a Christ follower. I don't know if you remember, but in John chapter 3, Jesus said that in order for someone to enter his kingdom, to be a Christ follower, he said that something has to happen to us. Do you remember what that was? Yeah, you have to be born again, right? That's the phrase. He said that there's a metamorphosis, a change. He says no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. There, there's a change that has to happen in us. That, that, that we're, it's impossible to follow Jesus. It's impossible to keep the Sermon on the Mount without this change happening in us. We've said all along it's supernatural. And so we, the Bible says when a person gives their life to Jesus, they move from the crowd to the kingdom, a change happens inside of them. A metamorphosis happens. They are changed from the inside out. Now, what are some of those changes? When a person's born again, what happens? Let me ask you, make it more personal. Let me ask you this question. You know, not show of hands. Are you born again? Have you been born again? You say, how do I know? I'm going to tell you. We're going to go through three, three tests to see if you're born again. We've talked a lot in this series about being in the crowd or being in the kingdom. It's possible you've been in church for 15 years here at Rocky Peak, but you're not really born again. That's possible, very possible. Happens in churches all the time. And so, so what does it look like? So there in your notes, you have a section that says, what happens when we're born again? Now, fortunately, there's a book in the New Testament that's all about this. It's a little book, and to the right in your Bibles, uh, it's a little letter of First John. Okay, so I want you to go there, First John. And the whole letter of First John is about how do you know whether you're born again? It, it tells you, it, what it says is that there are three major changes that happens in a person's life when they're born again. And so you can kind of see, can you relate? Now, obviously, if you if you've been a, uh, came to Christ as an adult, you're going to see more changes than if you grew up in a Christian home. You may, you may have to look a little harder. You'll, you'll still see them. But, but uh, you know, obviously, if you came to Christ later, it would be more obvious. Okay, but here's, a, here's what, uh, the first one. There in your note sheet, number one. Here's the first thing, kind of first sign that a person has been born again is that they have a new sense of right and wrong. Uh, and, and they have a hunger to do what's right as part of it. But there's just a new sense of right and wrong. It's not something that anyone teaches them. And that's what I want you to get clear on. This is intuitive. This is like salmon swimming upstream. This is like geese flying south. This is like Grunion coming in on the beach. No one comes along and says, hey, you need to think differently. I'm just telling you, the moment a person steps over their life and gives their life to Jesus, that something happens inside, there's a new sense of right and wrong. And it just happens to them. Now, John will explain this. He'll, he'll say this is one of the signs. And he'll use this terminology, and let me point it out here. He says that when a person is born again, he'll say that the seed of God 
And he's talking about the sperm, the divine sperm. Okay, that's the, that's the term. We're following this, with this whole metaphor, right? Born again, you're born, and you know, we all know that happens. And so he says that the seed of God, the sperm of God is gonna come in, the DNA of Jesus comes into a person, and there's certain things he brings. When the Holy Spirit comes, there's just certain things that happen to a person. It's a gift. It's not something we earn or deserve or what it worked for. It just happens. Okay, so this first one is a nuisance of right and wrong. Let's look at a couple of verses. Uh, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 29. And this is a big thing with John. The whole book's about these three changes that happen. I, I remember teaching through the book of 1 John one time, and it got kind of old. Because it just keeps saying the same thing over and over three times, you know? And like you're going through a long series. It's like, oh, I already said that. So here we go. Verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, talking about God, you know God is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been what? Born of him. Now, if that's not clear enough, go to 3.9. We'll just look at a couple examples in each of these. 3.9. He says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. Now, he doesn't mean that we'll always do anything right, but he's talking about no one who's truly a follower of Jesus can just go off and live in a high-handed sin and just be fine with that. Oh, yeah, it's fine. It's like, no, you're not going to know something's wrong. It's going to be eating at you. It's not going to be okay. And, and you're going to have to eventually stop. So no one who's born of God will continue to sin. Why? Because God's seed, his sperm, his DNA, remains in him. And he cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. There's a change that's happened, you see? Okay, let's look at a second one. A second change that happens is there's a new level of love. This is a second change that John says it happens is when we get the DNA of Jesus, he brings the love of Jesus. In fact, it's in 1 John where the statement is made that God is love, and so if someone's born of God, that's why they're going to have love in their life. So in chapter 4, let's look at a couple verses. Chapter, oh no, 3.9. Let's go back to 3.9 and 10. We just read 3.9. No one's born of God will continue to sin. Skip to 3.10. This is how we know who the children of God are. Okay, how do you know if you're truly a child of God, if you're even born again, and who the children of the devil are? Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. That's what we just saw. Here comes number two. Nor is anyone who does not love his brother. See, a second sign of being born again is there's a new love in your life. Okay, the third sign is a new perception of truth. And this has to do especially with who Jesus is. Uh, The way of salvation, the word of God, these kind of core truths. There's a new perception. Before you came to Jesus, certain things just didn't seem true. After you come to Jesus, you're looking and say, man, I I looked at that yesterday. It looked one way. It looks different today. I can't, you know, no one's really telling you. It's just like, it just looks different. Yeah, I think of that field the dreams uh, scene where, you know, you have the, the one brother who can't believe there's really players on the field. And then finally, at that moment, he goes, hey, where'd those players come from? You know, it's just like same field and everything. He just, his eyes were open. I remember when my, my wife, Lynn, when she came to Christ, she came to Christ as a junior in high school. Before she came to Jesus, she tried reading the Bible. It was dry, dusty, made no sense to her. It seemed stupid. She went to a, a, a weekend retreat with a Christian group. The person there was speaking about Christ. Uh, she, didn't, she didn't really understand about atonement. She didn't understand about Jesus dying for her. didn't understand the whole thing. All she knew is something inside of her powerful saying, you need what he has. And she went forward to be prayed for, and she came home two days later after that retreat, and she opened that same Bible she'd been trying to read for months, and it made more sense, and it just came alive. It was like it was written to her. It made sense. Like, what was wrong with me before? 
You see, there was a new perception of truth. And so he says, um, and, and uh, let's look at uh, chapter, uh, let's see, where am I here? Yeah, chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is what? Born of God. You see, there's an eye-opening thing that happens. So if you look at your life and say, are you born again? Well, let me ask you, do you have a hunger for doing what's right? And a sense of what that is and, and, and a drive to do what's right. Do you have a love for people, especially in the body of Christ, the brothers and sisters in the family? Is that's what he said in First John. Um, and do you have a clear understanding of who Jesus is? And yes, you believe in Jesus and his death for you. You see, these are three signs of being born again. Now you say, well, Mike, why did we do this little sidebar? Well, let, let's, let's talk about it. Let's go back to Matthew 5 now. I want to point out something that's extremely important. In Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 13. He says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, right? Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Now catch this. He does not say you should be the salt. He does not say you should be the light. He says you are the salt. You are the light. Why? Because he's changed us from the inside out. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the DNA in Jesus, you are different. You've been changed. And if you want to have impact in this world, all you have to do is be true to who you are. You see? We don't have to do anything else. We just have to be true to who we are. Let me take it one step further. For the last eight weeks, we've been studying the Beatitudes, the character of the kingdom, right? There in your note sheet, you have a, a, a diagram. And uh, we're just going to quickly fill that in. We're going to do a quick review of, of the character of the kingdom. You'll notice there, it's, kinda, it's like a clock. If you go to 12 o'clock on the clock, you have the top circle. You have the first beatitude. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, right? What we're going to do is I'm going to quickly give you a one word to describe each of the beatitudes, right? A one word character. Now, there is no one word that covers each of these things adequately. Remember, as we went through, we talked about the three sides of this, so the two sides of that. But just for our purposes here, we're just going to be a single word, all right? And so let's just quickly, we're going to fill in this character chart, all right? Because this, this is what Jesus said. This is the character of his kingdom. Okay, so number one, let's write the word humility. So first circle, write the word humility. Remember, bless you, the poor in spirit, those who know they have nothing to offer, no excuses to make, right? That's where we start with God. We have nothing to offer, and that's where we enter in the kingdom. Number two, let's write the word compassion. Remember, this, this was uh, those who mourn. And so we're going to go through hard times, and he's going to draw us to himself through hard times, and we're going to grow. Uh, we're also going to grow compassion for others, right? So let's put it called compassion. Number three, the word is gentleness. Remember, blessed are the meek. Meekness is not about weakness. It's about not taking matters in our own hands. It's about being gentle with others. Remember, Jesus reaching out, touching the leper. Remember? Okay, number four, let's write the word integrity. If you prefer the word justice, I was having a hard time. But those who hunger and thirst for what is right, just a, we have a new drive in our life for what's right and doing what's right and for having the world be the right place. When William Wilberforce came to Christ, he couldn't live in a world where slavery was, it was wrong, you see, and he, he wanted to change the world and make it right. Number five, blessed to the merciful. Let's write the word merciful. 
Remember, we saw that merciful has to be the opposite of being judgmental, and it has to do with reaching out to people in need like the Good Samaritan. Number six, let's write the word purity. Blessed of a pure in heart. It starts with no hypocrisy in our life with God and with others. And it, it, we allow God to clean up our life. And remember Zacchaeus, pure in heart, seeking after God. Number seven, write the word peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. We're learning how to work through conflict. We're learning how to say we're sorry. We're becoming a force for peace in all, everywhere we go instead of a source of conflict. And number eight, write the word courage. You know, blessed are the persecuted. Willingness to follow Jesus, do the right thing, even though it costs us. Okay, now look at that character list right there. Here's my, okay, Jesus says this is the character of his kingdom. He says this is the kind of people he's looking for. He's saying this is the kind of person I will turn you into if you follow me. This is what happens. When the DNA of Jesus comes in our life, he begins moving us towards these character qualities. You see? And so let's look at them. Just let's kind of let's read around the circle real quick there. We've got humility and compassion, and gentleness, and integrity. We got mercy, and purity, and peacemaker, and courage. See, that's the DNA of Jesus. That's what's given birth in us when you gave your life to Christ. And so Jesus comes, and he says, you are changed. You are different. Now just be who you are. Now, this leads us to Jesus' big concern. His big concern is that we would not be who we are. His big concern is what happens if the salt loses its saltiness? What happens if the light is hid under a, uh, a bowl? You see, what, what happens if we are not who we are? And you say, well, why would we do that? Why would we not be who we are? Well, there's a couple dangers. Let's write them down. Number one, there's no place in your note sheet. Just make one up. Number one. I think one danger Jesus is concerned with is the danger of pretending. This is the biggest danger, the danger of pretending. See, here's the biggest danger. The biggest, if you say, how, Mike, how will we lose our impact? How will we lose our influence? I can tell you, by pretending to be something you're not. That's how we will lose it. And you say, well, why would we pretend to be something we're not? Because have you ever noticed the darkness is not always big on the light? Have you ever noticed that? And so if we're going to be who we are, the darkness doesn't always like that because it's being exposed. And so for fear of persecution, we will hold in who we are and we lose our impact. See? So you always just be yourself. And we all know this, right? We've all been in a situation where we're just, we're holding back from being who we are because we don't want to get the heat, Right? And you see, this is why Jesus, the last beatitude, ends with blessed are the persecuted. You see? Because if we're not willing to do what we talked about last week, have the courage to pay the price, we can't be a light. You see? We have to be willing to pay the price if we want to have impact. I'll tell you what. One Christian who is faithful to Jesus in a dark place can turn the place around. But it will not be easy. But they just have to be themselves. They just have to be themselves. Because, why? Because the light will have an impact in that darkness just like that candle did in this whole dark room. There's a second reason, I think, why sometimes we, we don't have impact, and that's because of a, a priorities. That, you know, to get involved is sometimes just costly, isn't it? Sometimes it's easier not to get involved. Sometimes it's easier. We just don't want to spend our time or our resources 
that we know it's going to happen if we get involved. You think of Wilbur, Wilberforce. Man, here's this guy. I mean, William Wilberforce. I keep always saying Wilbur. Sorry, William. Anyway, uh, you think of William Wilberforce. Um, here's the guy. He had it made. He's 25 years old. He's a member of parliament. He's got a lot of money. He wants to make a name for himself. He's on his way. And he, he, he decides to be a light. Jesus comes into his life. The righteousness comes in his life. The love comes in his life. The truth comes in his life. He says, I can't live with this. God puts his call on him. He begins to let his light shine. What happens? The darkness begins to attack. There's criticism. There's opposition. There's death threats. There's slander, you see? And there's a huge temptation for him to back off and stop letting his light shine. Now, see, it wasn't hard for him to do what he was doing just in the sense of being who he was. Before, he only cared about himself. When he came to Jesus, a new love came in his life. He cared about these slaves. He cared passionately about them. But the temptation was for him to pretend like he didn't care. And that's the temptation for us, is to pretend that we're something we're not. And that's what Jesus means about hiding your light. You look there, there's a quote by John Stott on, uh, from the, the message on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, we are not to conceal the truth of who we are or what we know. I love that, okay? Now, let's go on to number three. The third principle. So we're designed for influence. The key to influence or the secret of influence is to be ourselves. And there's a third one that our primary strategy is our works and not our words. That's very interesting. I mentioned this earlier when we went through there, but when I was a kid growing up, my whole Christian life, this this verse was a favorite verse of, of many people. I was, you know, under their teaching that we're to be a light of the world, we're to let our light shine. But usually what was the, then, then said is that uh, a story was told about someone witnessing and sharing their faith on a plane or a bus or something. And I want to be real clear here, that's a great thing. Nothing wrong with that. I just want to be clear here, that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, let your words shine before men. He says, let your works shine before men. And, and I think that we live in a day and age where, frankly, in our culture, people are sick and tired of hearing Christians that we've had our chance. We had a couple hundred years. We haven't lived up to it. And when they think of Christians, they think of hypocrisy. They think of sham. They think of work. And so if we're going to win the world, it's going to be because we lead with our, wor- our works, not our words. It's be- it's be- and this is what Jesus did. When you look at his ministry, he would go out and he was healing. They would draw the crowds, right? And then he'd do their teaching. He was ministering to people. I look at life of a guy like William Wilberforce, and a lot of people don't know this. In fact, I didn't know this before I researched it recently. But do you know that, you know, he's well known for his, the slave trade thing. But do you know that there was, uh, over the course of his life, he championed 69 other social causes in his day. 69. You know, what kind of causes? Well, I'll give you some examples. Child labor laws. Um, hospitals for the poor. Uh, educational reform prison reform, uh, protection against cruelty to animals, you see? So he had this whole philosophy of life. I think Jesus would just love this. He'd say he, he got it. His philosophy is when a man or woman gives their life to Jesus, from that point on, they're supposed to learn how to love their neighbor, and that means making the world better in any way we can, you see? And so he jumped in with both feet in all these different causes. And it opened, it gave him the platform to share about Jesus, who was his motivation for doing that. 
You see, and I think we live in a day and age where we live in a very skeptical world. And it's as we are out there loving people, being the hands and feet of Jesus in tangible ways, it's going to open their hearts to the message. I really believe this in this day and age that many times people need to see the works of Jesus before they want to hear about the words of Jesus. So we're not all called to be great reformers, but what does that look like in our life? Well, let me give you just a couple examples. You're, a, you're a, a school teacher, and you, you teach in first grade or second grade, and you love those kids, and you go the extra mile for them, and you care about those kids, and you care about their families, and, and you love those kids. You do what a normal teacher would do, but you go the extra mile, and you love them in the name of Christ, you see? I mean, you're opening up a door there. Um, you're, on, you're at your job, and someone's going through a divorce. They're not a follower of Jesus. They may not have been close before, but maybe you've gone through a divorce, and you know the pain of that. And you come alongside and you try to help them in just practical ways. And you give them encouragement and support. There's someone on your job, they're struggling with drugs. They're trying to come off of drugs. And you've been on drugs and you know what that's like. And you come alongside and you try to support them and help them. There's someone in your neighborhood and they're struggling financially. And you come along and you help them to, to get those new tires for their car or whatever. You just love people. You see, you take that circle, that character circle we have. You say, what does it mean to be light and light? It means to be that. Light and salt, it means to be that. All these stories we've been going on with Jesus, which is that. We, we, we just let the character of Jesus come out of us. We let it flow out of us. We, 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 uh, we be who we are. No, let's say that. <laughs> we be. We be how we are. Okay. Uh, all right. Very educated man. Um, you follow me here? You follow me? And this has been revolutionary for me. Just like, man, Jesus is just saying, hey, I've changed you. You just be who you are. You just be who you are. He said, when your heart moves you to reach out to someone, don't stop your heart because, oh, I'm too busy. Or don't stop your heart or that might get involved or that might be dangerous. Don't stop your heart. He said, when you see someone in need here and your heart's telling you to go, you go. Be who you are. And when you're in a tough situation and that teacher says at that, that secular school, does anyone here believe, like we talked last week, that it's, that it's better not to have sex before marriage? You raise your hand. You see, you be who you are. Because if you don't raise your hand, you're pretending to be something you're not. You see, and that's what's killing us. We're pretending often to be something we're not. Jesus says, isn't this awesome? So many times as Christians, we feel like we don't have what it takes or we're not mastering up. No, Jesus is saying, you do have what it takes. I have changed you. You just go be changed people. You just just do, do your thing. Be who you are. Isn't that awesome? And as you are who you are, he says, man, you're like a light in a dark place, and it didn't take much light to change things, and it didn't take a lot of salt to change stuff. You just be who you are, you see? God bless, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that when you call us to follow you, you change us from the inside out, that, that this being born again, it's not just a phrase, it's not just a catchphrase, it's a description of a metamorphosis that, cha- that happens at the core of our being. And we might not be changed all overnight, it may not happen that way, but that change has started there, that DNA is planted there, that seed is planted. God, and as we listen to your spirit, we follow your spirit, we submit to your spirit, Lord, the, we see the character, the fruit of that spirit being born in our life. And Lord, we just want to be a place here at Rocky Peak that is an impact in these three communities and around the world for you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to be who we are. We pray this in your name. Amen. I love the movie Braveheart. I don't know if you love that. I think it's my favorite movie. 
I love the scene where William Wallace is in front of the Scottish troops. And if you remember the movie, if you've seen the movie, you've got all the kind of different tribes of Scotland to come together, kind of a ragtag group, really. They don't have a leader. They're not even sure they want to fight. On the other side, you have the British Army, the, the kings of England who've been oppressing them for years. And they're outfitted in beautiful uh, armor and, and just kind of perfectly clothed. And they're arrogant and they're there. You remember William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson. When Wallace comes on his white horse, he comes riding in front of that troops. And he gives that rousing speech. And everyone's like fired up, you know, and they're ready to go and we're ready to charge. And, and then William Wallace goes back to his leaders, his small inner circle of leaders. They go, what are we going to do now? And he says, he says, I'm going to go pick a fight. You just be yourselves. We follow a leader who went to pick a fight, the kingdom of darkness. It's not about a fight like this world knows fights. But he went to, to pick a fight, and he left us here, and he said, hey, while I'm gone, you just be yourselves. You say, you are the salt of the earth. You right here, you are the light of the world. You might not feel like it. You might not feel up to that task, but I tell you something, in the name of Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. It's not that you should be, it's you are. You are the light of the world. And all we have to do to make impact is to be honest about who we are. As you're honest about who you are, and you do the right thing, and you love people, and you stand for what's right and what's true and good, we will make that impact. Because we don't have to become anything. All we have to do is follow his instructions. I'm going to pick a fight. You be who you are. God bless you. Go be who you are this week. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.